Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for who you are and for what you've done for us through your son, Jesus, that you would send him to die on the cross, that he would atone for our sins and also give us a righteousness that we didn't have. And Lord, we're honored that we can gather together and look deeply into your word. We ask that you would open it to us and illuminate us so that we may understand the things that are contained within it. So, Lord, we ask uh, that you would give fellowship to the saints around the nation, around the world. And we ask that this uh, word would convert people and it would also conform people to the image of your Son. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is our last section in Colossians. And we're going to be looking at the final greetings. And we'll give you a, bit, a little bit of a review And I can't go too extensively into review for the sake of time, but what I'm going to do is I have 13 slides. I may hold any comments till I get done, because to be honest with you, I don't know how long this goes. The first slides will go relatively quick, because I'm just going to point out a few names that will help aid you in further studying of the Scripture. So let me get started. Colossians 4, 7 through 9, we're going to see that Tychicus here that's mentioned, by the way, this man is a, his name literally means a fortunate one or fortuitous one, And here you're going to see he is Paul's delivery man. He's actually the man that delivers the messages for Paul quite often. And listen to what Paul says. He says, As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information, for I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. This Tychicus, he is actually, again, Paul's delivery man, and he is seen actually in 2 Timothy 4.12. I think it's 2 Timothy 4.12. Yeah, he actually does the delivery of the letter to the Ephesians as well. Okay, So think of Tychicus as Paul's delivery man. And also you see here that the circumstances that Paul is talking about was that Epaphras and Aristarchus, they were in jail with him. So those men were currently in jail. And this was the first imprisonment that Paul had. Remember, he has a second imprisonment, one that he will never come out of again. But this is the first imprisonment. And this is where he wrote his epistles that are called the prison epistles. That would be Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians, so forth. So... Um, and we'll, we'll actually be looking at that here in a second. Let me just keep moving, though, for the sake of time. Here we have Colossians 4, 10 through 11. Aristarchus, Paul continues, says, My fellow prisoner sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas' cousin Mark, of course, he's the writer of the Gospel of Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him, and also Jesus called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from their circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Aristarchus, Barnabas, and Mark, notice they're called those of the circumcision. And that just shows you that when we see the term of the circumcision, oftentimes in Scripture it's used as a pejorative of those who want to go back to the old covenant and forsake the new covenant. They believe they have to go back to maintaining circumcision and those sort of things. But here you can see that it's not used in a negative way. It simply means they're Jewish. Okay? So I thought that was an interesting point. The other thing is Aristarchus. You can read about him in Acts 19.29. Barnabas, remember his name means son of encouragement. He was a Cyprian. He was from the little island. It's actually a big island, I guess, in the Mediterranean. And you can read about him in Acts 4.36. And then Mark. Mark was, again, the gospel writer. According to uh, 1 Peter 5.13, he was very close to Peter as well. And in fact, 
extra-biblical literature has it that Peter actually helped Mark write his gospel. But if you recall in Acts 15, Mark had a falling out, remember, with Paul. Paul became so angry with him, and we're not exactly sure. It sounds like he probably... He probably left Paul when Paul needed him, and he kind of deserted. That's kind of the idea that we get. Anyway, that's the same Mark, the same Mark who wrote the Scriptures. But now you can see that Mark and Paul have amended their relationship, if you will, and they're ministering together. So again, these would be the Jewish believers that Paul was working with very closely. Now, Epaphras, remember, he was the one who brought the gospel to those at Colossae. Verses, uh, this is Colossians 4, 12 through 13. Epaphras, Paul writes, who is one of your number, meaning he was from the Lycus Valley. He was from Colossae himself. Um, he's a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. I want to talk about Epaphras. You're going to see actually him in Colossians 1.7, if you recall, where it said, just as you learned it, that is the gospel from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant. He was the one that lived in Colossae. He understood the problems of these people in the Lycus Valley wanting to invoke the help of angels to protect them from the stoichia. And so he was so concerned about it. Notice he's as concerned as Paul is. In fact, Paul depicts him as always laboring earnestly and fervently in prayer. So he was just as concerned about this heresy as Paul was. The other thing I want you to remember, and I thought, I don't know why I didn't think of this before, but remember Colossae starts with a C. Remember they had cold water, right? They had cold water. Laodicea starts with an L, they had lukewarm water, right? <laughs> oh, not good. And Hierapolis, they had hot water. Starts with an H. I thought, oh, why didn't I think of that before? So here's the point in uh, Revelation 3:19. Um, Jesus takes this idea of Laodicea being lukewarm, and he borrows that idea from their water supply, right? So remember, the cold water from Colossae met the hot water of Hierapolis, and it became lukewarm by the time of Laodicea. And so what Jesus was saying in Revelation 3.19 wasn't that he wants us to either be for him or against him, but he was calling the Laodiceans lukewarm because their water wasn't life-giving cold and it wasn't therapeutic hot. It was a disgusting, good-for-nothing lukewarm. Okay, So remember, all these cities, they're in that same region, and they would have been all struggling with the same heresy. That is the heresy of wanting to invoke angels to protect them from the stoichia that controlled their fate. Okay, does that all ring a bell? All right. Now we see the fellow workers in the gospel. He continues in Colossians 4, 14 through 15. Paul continues, says, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha in the church that is in her house. There's some discussion about whether Nympha is a woman or whether he's a man, because in some texts, some texts they have an as ending, which would be a different declension masculine. But most scholars believe it should be a woman. The other thing is, of course, Luke here, that is the one who wrote the Gospel of Luke. But Demas, notice Demas here, he is um, with Paul. He is giving comfort to Paul. He's working with Paul. But later on we see evidence where he actually leaves Paul during Paul's second imprisonment. 
Okay, and we read about that in 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 10, where Paul writes, he says, Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. It's interesting that Paul uses that term that he has loved this present world. I don't think we should press that too far and think that he was lost to salvation. I just think it means that he had forsaken and fallen into sin. He'd forsook his friend and the apostle Paul. So anyway, just to let you know, that's what Demas ended up doing later. And again, that would be during the second imprisonment. Now, here's an interesting passage in 4.16. We're going to see evidence here that Paul, his letter, is in fact scripture. Okay, We see evidence of, the, of this at the end of Second Peter. Remember when Peter says that the false teachers distort Paul's writings as they do the rest of the scriptures? And so here clearly Peter links Paul's writings as being authoritative, on par with the Old Testament scriptures. We're going to see further evidence here. Colossians 4.16, it says, When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and you. For your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Now, first of all, I want to talk about that term red. But notice, red, the term here is anagonoste. This is um, eris passive subjunctive. Now, what in the world is that? Well, it's important because it actually has to do with knowing exactly. And I'm going to show you why the tense and the different parts of the verb are important in the next slide. But notice, it means to literally to know exactly. And it always normally involves the reading aloud within the assembly of the believers. In other words, it would be a term that's used when you're reading the scriptures aloud within the assembly of God's people, whether it be the Old Covenant in the synagogue or now the ecclesia, the church. Are you with me? And so the reason why it's... Gnosko means to know. Anagnosko means to know exactly. And the reason why you can know exactly is because this is a word from God. And so the idea is... Like, for instance, when Bob is preaching this morning, he is carrying forth an authoritative word from God, and so therefore you can know exactly what God has said. We're not in the dark. That's the kind of idea. Now, why is that so important? Well, because it's indicating that Paul believes that his letter is Scripture. Because the only time that you would do this anagonoste or anagonosco is when you're reading actual Scripture within the confines of the assembly. Are you with me? So this is Paul, in a subtle way, is attesting to the fact that his very words are Scripture. Who had the first Thessalonians 5.27? I think this is the only... Oh, yeah, Jim. This is the only passage I think I had for us this morning to look up, and the rest of them I'll just... I'll do. First Thessalonians 5.27. I call on you solemnly in the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. Yeah, so there in Thessalonica, the same term is used, read, anagonosko, and that again would mean that that letter had to be read within the presence of all the saints in their ecclesia, their assembly, again verifying that what Paul wrote to those in Thessalonica was in fact scripture. But the other thing is, notice the same term is used in Acts 15.21, where it says, For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he has read anagonosko in the synagogues every Sabbath. So again, further evidence that what Paul was doing is saying this is Scripture and it should be read among the brethren. Why? Because you may know exactly what God has revealed. That's the idea. Okay. Now let's talk about that Laodicean church. What is the Laodicean letter? And I'm going to show you something interesting. Let me read it again. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and you, for your part, read my. Now, by the way, that my does not exist in the Greek text. So he says, read 
it literally be read the letter that is coming from Laodicea. Now, there's four different options as to what this letter from Laodicea is. And the reason why this is important to us this morning, it seems rather academic, but different heretics throughout the generations and even recently have tried to claim that uh, there was a gospel from Laodicea and therefore this was the, it was actually the letter that was lost. And if it came from Paul, therefore we should accept it as scripture. Well, in fact, it was just a Gnostic document and people basically signed on to it saying that it should be read as authoritative. Okay, So the point is, is we want to give a defense uh, as to what this letter may be or at least think about it. So let me give you the four options. And I actually favor the first one here. I think it, well, the first two options anyway, I I favor. It is the current letter to the Colossians. The idea would be, remember, Tychicus, he is the one who's the mail carrier, right? And the idea would be that he would go to Laodicea first, and then they would read the letter, and then it would go on to Colossae. So Laodicea would be visited first by Tychicus. Now, let me give you a grammatical clue in the Greek text, and I know this gets a little cumbersome sometimes, but let me just show you something that's interesting, I think, in the Greek text let me just read along here. This is a hina kai, and it means literally in order also. Kai can either mean and or also. So it would be in order also in the Laodicean assembly it be read. This is a third-person passive subjunctive. It's, a, um, it's an aorist, actually. Yeah, it's an aorist. Um, so the idea would be that the letter would be read. So here's how it would read. It would read in order also in the Laodicean church it be read, that is the the letter. And then it says, and it from the Laodiceans in order also that you would read it. That would be the idea. Okay, now here's the connection I want you to see. Notice where it says, Hinakai and Hinakai. It's in order that also and in order that also you. Okay, that you refers to those at Colossae. And so in order that they read it, in order that you also read it. And the idea then is I think that gives us a grammatical clue that the only thing that's going on here is the Laodiceans got the, the letter first, okay? Because they're both supposed to read it, and very likely Tishikus just went to Laodicea first, okay? Now, let me give you another option that has a compelling twist to it. The second option is this. <laughs> you know, I'm just thinking, I have two more options, and I don't know how it's going to fit on that screen, but I must because I put it on there. Anyway, the second option is it, it is the Ephesians epistle, Martian, by the way, he was a heretic, okay? And Martian, though, had one of the earliest canons. Martian didn't believe that the Old Testament God was the same as the New Testament God. In, in some sense, he shared that with the Gnostics. Now, Martian's canon, interestingly enough, he had the Ephesians epistle entitled to the Laodiceans. And so some scholars believe that this is evidence that perhaps the Laodicean letter was actually the Ephesian letter. Are you with me? Now, I favor these two. I actually favor number one. This is probably what I would lean towards, but this isn't a bad option either. Now, why is this significant? Because it would eliminate any people who are claiming that there's a Laodicean letter today that is Gnostic as being authentic. Because, in other words, we have two reasons or two possible scenarios where it's an existing letter within the canon, either that of Colossae, the Colossian letter, or that the one written to the Ephesians. Is everybody with me? Okay, so we don't have to buy into the idea that there's some lost letter out there. But now the other two, it is a letter from the Laodiceans, and it's just one that's been lost. And number four, it is a lost letter from Paul. Oh, I, I know what I'm getting at here. The, the idea here, number three, is that the letter came from the Laodiceans. Okay, so Laodicea wrote him a letter. 
Are you, are you with me? And then it somehow got lost. Okay? Um, that doesn't, again, I think that's ruled out because of the grammatical construction up here. What, they, what Paul wants read is the letter that he sent. In fact, we have here Tain. This is an article, and it's in the accusative. That is, it's a feminine article. That's linking back to the word letter or epistole earlier on in the verse. And so the point is, is that whatever they're reading here, the you of those at Colossae, is the same letter. Okay? So it can't be a, a different letter. So this, I think number three is just ruled out. So number four would be a lost letter from Paul. Well, it doesn't seem to make sense because, again, Paul seems to be talking about the same letter. So the point is, I think number one and two are the best options. Okay? Does that help? Do any of the church fathers refer to this letter? Because it would have been very public, obviously, if it was read in two different places. Or did the church fathers silence so it must have been one existing in the canon? That's, if they, that was my question. Yeah, Keith, I'm, I'm ignorant um, as to whether or not we can see any evidence within the writings of the patristic fathers or any of the fathers about whether or not this was, in fact, you know, in any of the writings. I just don't know. Um, as far as I know, it's not. But I, I, I could be wrong. Um, I assume it's not because none of the scholarship that I read on that issue brought it up. So I would assume that they would be aware of it. But, yeah. Sorry, I wish I could be more helpful than that. Okay. Now, Paul's signature, remember he says, I write this in my own hand and look at the big letters that I use. That's what we see here in Colossians 4, 17 through 18. He says, and say to um, Archippus that he says, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. He says, this salutation by my own hand, Paul. Then he says, remember my chains, grace be with you, amen. By the way, is everybody, everybody I would assume, I, I've never talked about this, I assume that you guys at some point have talked about amen, amen. What does that mean? It means truly or verily. Let me just talk about that real quickly. Jesus, when he teaches, he teaches in a culture that has a lot of rabbis, and the rabbis typically would have their own students and when the rabbi would give a teaching, the students would say, Amen. This is true. This is truly a word from God. What's interesting is Jesus is so authoritative that he starts out his teaching by saying, Amen, Amen. Why? Well, because he needs no one else to attest to the authority. He's saying, truly, truly, this is a word. So I think about when people marveled at the authority of the teaching that he had, this may be one reason. He attests to the fact that it's true up front. He doesn't wait for students to say, Amen. So one thing to think about... The other thing is this Archippus, or Archippus, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, he may have been the son of Philemon. Okay, I think I've got that on here. Yeah. So he may have been perhaps the son of Philemon, and there's thought that he may have lived in Laodicea, and so the idea would be that he would have some form of a pastoral role. And so Paul is reminding reminding him of his obligations. You see his name in Philemon too. And um, remember, now let me talk about the imprisonments. Remember, the first imprisonment of Paul happened, you can read about in Acts 28. We know that he actually gets out of this imprisonment. And these are the uh, uh, prison epistles, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, Philemon. And then we see the second imprisonment. Oh, by the way, it was between 60 and 62 AD. I think the letter to the Colossians was written around 61. Now, why is that significant? Remember that there was an earthquake in 61 AD? And I think that may have played a role in the heresy at Colossae. Remember, those people who became Christians, they trusted in Jesus Christ. Prior to that point, no earthquake. Okay, Think real simply. 
before Jesus Christ, building standing. After Jesus Christ, building fall down. Angels angry. You know what I mean? Think of, that's probably how they thought. And so the idea would be then, well, we have to appease these stoikia who control our fate. And so they would be tempted then to invoke the help of angels to protect them. So Jesus, the idea isn't sufficient. So that's why the dating here is important. That's why I'm bringing it up. Now, the second imprisonment by Paul happens in between 66 and 67 AD. And we read about that in 2 Timothy. So 2 Timothy, after that, he dies. That's his last letter. And he um, dies under the persecution by Nero, Okay, the Neronian persecution. Nero comes to power about 64, but it's more likely that Paul is probably arrested around 66, somewhere in there. So anyway, those are the two imprisonments. Now, I'm going to talk about some major themes, and I only have two because I want to talk about one of them. <laughs> Let me just say it this way. I have one major theme and then a subtle one that I hope aids in your Bible study throughout the rest of the Scriptures. Okay. Now, remember the major theme at Colossae was the heresy. And you see that, for instance, that in Colossians 2.8, Paul writes this. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive. Remember, Bob did an article about that, and he points out that the literal Greek there indicates that we're taken captive or taken as booty. The idea is that a foreign army has come and has plundered you. That's the idea of see to it that no one takes you captive. See to it that no one plunders you or takes you as plunder. He says, through the philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men. Notice it's according to the tradition of men, not according to Christ. And it's according to the standard of the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. Now, the first thing we had to decide is what was the philosophy? Well, in order to understand the philosophy, we had to understand three concepts. The first concept was what were the elementary principles? And remember, we defined that as being the stoichia. The second thing we had to define was imbatuon, that participle that meant to enter in, the initiation. I'll talk about that in a second. And the other term that we had to define was the worship of angels. And so I'm going to be talking about that. So remember, we defined the elementary principles as the stoichia. These are the fallen angels who, in fact, the people at Colossae believed they controlled their fate. And remember that we had these 36 astral deacons that the Persians believed in, and they controlled 10 degrees of the celestial sphere. And what happened more than likely was these people at Colossae believed that these fallen angels that controlled the celestial sphere controlled whether or not their kid was born with a third eye, whether or not they were going to be successful in their business. And so they believed that they had to appease them. Okay, so that's what the elementary principles were. They were the stoichia, and the philosophy was that, in fact, these stoichia had to be appeased, and we had to be protected from them by invoking angels. So the worship of angels, we saw that in Colossians 2.18. Remember, the choice was, is it the worship of angels in that the angels are worshiping God, or is it that that would be a subjective genitive, or is it an objective genitive where you and I are worshiping the angels? Was that the issue? Remember, we said it was the latter. The latter was the, the case was that the, the people at Colossae, they were worshiping the angels. Why? Because they needed protection from the stoichia who controlled their fate. And so instead of giving their pure allegiance to Christ and to him alone, they added to Christ. Okay, And that's the big problem that we have here. 
And the third term that we had to come up with was imbatuon. Remember, that was a participle, and we, dis- we um, defined that as meaning they entered in. It was a technical term that was used within the temples for a mystery initiation rite whereby the Colossian heretics, those who are espousing these ideas, they believed they entered into an ecstatic experience whereby they now had protection from the stoichia from the angels. Okay, And so this was a secret initiation, and that's what imbatuon meant. So now we know the three terms that we have to know to understand the Colossian heresy. We understand the elementary principles are the fallen angels, the stoichia. We understand that the worship of angels was literally the people at Colossae worshiping the angels in order to gain favor from them. And imbatuon was a technical term used for the initiation rite of these people as they actually went into an ecstatic experience, thereby thinking they had protection. And what's the problem with all of this? It's denying the sufficiency of Christ. Yes, they started with Christ for salvation, but now what were they saying? He's not sufficient. I need something else. And so that's why I think the issue, really, it boils down to uh, two of the tenets of the Reformation. Uh, Salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone. I want to talk about that with you here. Listen to what Clinton Arnold said in his book, and I've given you this before, but I think it's worth noting. He says, the greater implication is with Christology, that is, that's the major issue with the book, where it appears that Christ is either neglected in favor of calling upon angels or is regarded on the same level as the angels. Do you see how horrible a thing that would be to do to take Christ, who is the creator of all things, he is the redeemer of all things, and to subject him or put him on the level of being just another one of the created beings. It's heresy of the highest order. And that's why Paul was so uh, fiercely engaged in fighting it. So let's talk about faith alone. God's ordained means by which we know God and therefore come into a saving relationship uh, with him is by faith in his son. Faith in Christ and what he did and faith in who he is But notice, these people taught a self-made religion, one in which they did things that were not ordained by God, namely they invoked the help of angels, right? Well, where did God command us to do that? Well, of course he didn't. And so it's a denial of the sufficiency of Christ and uh, salvation by faith alone. Yeah, Keith. I just want to maybe bring it into focus, the same concept. Yeah. Because in Jude 9, it says... But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a raving judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. So we see then an angel fighting an angel, in essence, Michael fighting the devil. But our response is just to call upon God not to invoke Michael, even though he does fight against the devil. And if you look at this and and, uh, look at the concept of salvation by faith alone, and that the solas in the battle of the Reformation, you could say invoking the saints, invoking Mary, invoking the apostles, invoking anybody else is in the same concept as invoking Michael the angel because we're calling upon somebody else to fight the fates or fight the devil when we should just trust God because the devil even here was God's devil. And Michael... The archangel yeah. recognized it was God's devil, and he just invoked God and, and trusted him. That's right. I like that. It, you can use a lesser to greater argument, or maybe greater to lesser, but the idea is if Michael, the archangel, does nothing with this other angel, 
then how much more should we not, being a lesser being than an angel? And, um, yeah, so he allows God to handle that. And, yeah, that's a, that's a great, great take on it. Um, yeah, the invocation of angels shows that these people were not trusting that through faith alone and Christ alone that they had salvation from first to last. Friends, if salvation is just temporal, meaning it's just salvation temporarily, then it's not eternal life. And by faith alone and Christ alone, we're given eternal life. Well, these people believe that they needed salvation, not necessarily from eternal damnation, but they needed help from the angels uh, and protection for things here and now. And, of course, that relegates Christ to being on par with these angels. And, of course, Paul would, that would be very angering to Paul, and it should be to all of us. Yeah, um, Mike's got something. Uh, this idea of stoichia, yeah. um, it's, there's several terms to refer to them, and yeah. I think sometimes we don't pick up because of the wide variety of terms. Yeah. But if you look to uh, Ephesians 6, talks about rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And what happens is you see these things pop up uh, all over Scripture, but I don't think we really uh, understand what it's talking about. Uh In other words, in Matthew 24, it talks about shaking the the heavenly powers. And that's what it's talking about. In Isaiah, I think it's 24, it talks about these heavenly powers are going to be punished. Mm. And these are these fallen angels, these stoichia, but, you know, I used to read over this stuff and not know what the heck yeah. was being said here. Yeah. But once you see the the thread and you understand the terminology, and, and there's a wide variety uh, in Colossians, he, he uses a couple of terms... And he says he, he makes a spectacle of them. Yeah, that's right. And I, I don't know if we we appreciate the thread through all of Scripture talking about these, these fallen angels, these stoichia, yeah. these heavenly powers. Yeah, I love that, Mike. That's well said. Yeah, the interesting thing about him making a public spectacle of them, it's as if Christ is the warring victor and he brings them on display as booty. So ironically, there's a reversal. The stoichia are trying to do bring um, people that they're lying to as their booty. Well, Christ has actually reversed that in the Stoichia are his booty from, or his plunder from war. And yet you're right, Ephesians 6, there's a lot of language of the host of heaven. By the way, I recommend there's an article that is on our reference links by Michael Heiser. Has anybody read that one? It's about Deuteronomy 32.8 and how the Septuagint reading is actually superior to the uh, Masoretic text. And Bob, you did that whole uh, sermon in a series, I think, um, a couple of them at least, about the host of heaven. Yeah, yeah, the host of heaven are actual beings yep. that are, you know, enemies of God. Wow. And they're ultimately judged. It says that they'll be judged on the earth. Yeah. Now, one of the things I, I, I appreciate that you've taught us through Colossians, it's been fantastic. Yeah. Colossians is one of the more important epistles that apply to the church today and I think the real tragedy is that it's so poorly understood yeah okay if you get into a debate with somebody let's let's just take something that's on a top on the table right now yeah. spiritual formation yeah. spiritual disciplines right so if somebody says well why are you against that it must be something good I mean, why wouldn't we not want to be more spiritual right well the issue is this what you have right there self 
made religion. That's right. Are we sanctified by some means outside of what's ordained in Scripture? Wow, that's right. Is there some spiritual secret to be learned yeah. by a guru? Right. And they call them spiritual directors. And, and there's a website uh, put up by Richard Foster, Renovary thing, that tells you where to go to find spiritual directors. Oh, <laughs> and, and it's really a Christian version of a guru. Now, why do we suddenly need gurus in the church? Right. Well, because we've departed from what's in Scripture alone. That's right. We departed from God's ordained practices, and we, like the Colossians, have decided Christ alone is not good enough for us. That's right. That there's some uh, spiritual warfare teaching or some uh, practice that we need or something that's going to help us. And once you go out into the spirit realm outside of Scripture, well, then... How do you know what you're doing? You can't see these spirits, can you? Right, right. Okay? And so as soon as you're out here in the spirit world, outside of Scripture... You're defenseless. You're defenseless, and that's why you need a shaman or a guru (laughs) or a deliverance counselor or a spiritual director. Yep. You need a person to mediate between you and the spirits out there because you can't quite see what you're doing. If we stay with the solas of the Reformation, faith alone, grace alone... Christ alone, Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone, we don't have to go out there where we have to worry about these stoichia getting us. And we don't need a spiritual director. And we don't need to find out secrets because everything that's revealed is sufficient for us. Amen. So I don't know how... I've tried to say this every possible way I can, every place I can. Yeah. And it seems like uh, it just doesn't get through. You're right. They don't get it. Almost every Bible college in the United States now has spiritual formation. And I think about, as you're saying that, Bethel, you and Jan Markell were at Bethel Seminary where a Christian professor, he thinks that he has to engage in Zen Buddhism. By the way, Zen Buddhism, just Zen means meditation. And why is he involved with meditation? So that he can reach enlightenment. And therefore, once you reach enlightenment, you get two things. You get secret information. And the second thing is you become one with the the one God. You have unity with him. Well, that's self-made religion. And if they would just heed the warnings that they see here in Colossians 2, um, they would know that anything apart from faith in Christ is, self, is self-made religion. And it's, in fact, heresy. Um, and, in fact, this uh, lends nicely to the topic of Christ. Because it's a Christological issue. Jesus alone, when we talk about faith alone and, and Christ alone, think about this. Any addition to Christ confirms that the one who adds uh, does not know the Christ of the Scriptures. If we really believed in the Christ of the Scriptures, we would know that we don't need the angels to protect us from the stoichia. So when people add or they engage in self-made religion, like the professors are at Bethel, when they're engaged in Zen Buddhism, what they're doing is they're saying Christ is not sufficient. Yeah, Mike. It's not an idea of our effort to uh, know and understand Christ. Yeah. If you look at Matthew 11:27, it says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Yes. Yeah. So it's not it's not an effort on humans' part, but it's, right. it's grace on the part of God. 
That's right. We see the same thing in Matthew 13. Exactly. Hey, before you read that, let me just read about who Christ is. Remember, you guys, um, I love that. That's exactly right. We don't determine if God reveals himself to us. He reveals himself to us. And it's nothing that we can conjure up. We can't conjure up an experience with the Almighty. In fact, knowing the scriptures is how we're to come to him. But let's, let's read about Christ. You remember the Christ hymn that we looked at at Colossians 1.15? Let me just read that. This is who Christ is. And at the end, of, when I'm done reading this, ask yourself, why would I need to invoke the help of an angel? Who is Jesus? Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. I think there's the stoichia alluded to again. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So not only did he create all things, but he sustains all things. He is also the head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of deity to dwell within him. And, and so forth. So by the time you get done reading that, what's Paul's point? You don't need angels. You've got everything you need in Christ, right? Keith, you had something. I think that a good, that's a greater argument is how John closes up the whole canon. Yeah. He goes, I testify to everyone who hears the words and prophecy of the, of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. Yeah. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. So if just the written words of God and his revelation of himself is that strong, that if you add to them, you will be plagued with everything that's written in Revelation. That's right. How much more does someone to add to, the, to, to Christ and try to get away with it? Right. And it's ironic that if you add to the things in the scriptures, you're putting yourself under the stoichia. That's what's so ironic, and that was the deception. Now, let me, um, you got one over there, Brian? Yeah, you know, I'm sorry, let me just see if I can get through these slides. I just want to show you one other theme, and the reason why I want to get into this theme, it's a subtle one, but it's one that I want you all to take with you because it's going to, I think, open up the way you understand the scriptures. And I should have put minor theme. <laughs> I'm somewhat mislabeled here, but... I think it's an important theme for the future study of the scriptures. Remember, the Colossians teaches believers have left the realm or the sphere of Satan and have permanently entered the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Remember that concept of two spheres, the sphere of Satan and the sphere of Christ. Okay, I'll, I'll, let me explain why this is so um, important. Look at what Colossians 1.13 says. It says, for he, that is God, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So again, there's two realms. Now, we see the same idea in Colossians 2, 7, 9, and 13, and it's what's called the dative of sphere. We are either in the kingdom of darkness or we are in Christ's kingdom. So there's only two spheres, and so it would look like this. This is what God did for us. He brought us from Satan's sphere to Jesus' kingdom. Now, why is this important? Well, it's going to open up, I think, our understanding of other passages, like in John chapter 17, where Jesus prays for his disciples that the Lord would keep him, keep them from the evil one. Let me just show you how this plays in. And it also, I think it's um, important for understanding of Revelation 3.10. Okay, let me explain. John 17.15, the, the passage in context, Jesus is prayed praying for his disciples, and it's related to their salvation. It doesn't have to do with their not sinning. Okay, now why do I say that? Well, because the next chapter, in chapter 18, when Jesus prays that, he, that his disciples would be kept from the evil one, 
Remember, the very next chapter, Peter denies Christ three times. Okay? So therefore, it's not that he wants them to be kept from sin in that sense. Of course, he, you know, that's part of it. But the idea would be that they're kept from the sphere of the evil one. They're protected eternally. That's the idea. And so let me read this text to you. Jesus prays and says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep, to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world. There's, two prep, there's a preposition in here. It's, it's the same one, but it's used twice. It's ek. And here the first time it's translated out of, and the second time it's translated as from. Now, what I want you to realize is there's a debate. How do we understand ek? Normally, ek, this preposition, is understood as from being taken out from the midst of something. Okay, in other words, inside the sphere. Okay, now let me explain what I'm getting at. Ek, the debate that scholars are having is, do we believe that it means from the inside? In other words, you're protected while you're in the sphere, or are you kept from being in the sphere altogether? In other words, you're protected from the outside. Well, in the first portion of this text, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. I think it's number one that's being referred to, that we're protected, or rather Jesus is saying don't take them from, here's where all Christians are, they're in the world. And so the idea would be he's praying that the Father would not remove them from the world. Okay, ek. In other words, he's not having them move from the midst of this sphere, if you think of this world as the sphere. So it's from the inside. Okay, so this idea of take them out would be do not take them out from the midst of this sphere. But now he switches. He says, but this would be Allah, and it typically means a contrast of thought. Okay, there's a contrast. All right, so he says, uh, don't do this, but do this. And what is he asking? Well, I think now he's focusing on preservation from the outside of the sphere because of the verb keep, which is tereo. In other words, I think now he's talking about exactly what we read about in Colossians. It's this idea. This is the idea that he's talking about now. He's talking about preservation from Satan's sphere. Okay? And so here we have Christ's kingdom, and he's saying, keep them from the evil one. So yes, the next chapter, does Peter sin? Oh yeah, he sins. But... Does he ever go back from Christ's kingdom to Satan's sphere? No. He's eternally secure. He's one of God's elect. Are you with me? And so here we have an example where the verb, the verb here is tereo, indicates that tereo and from is an idea of protection. So let me explain. Here we have ero ek means motion. So what Jesus is saying here is do not take them from this sphere, but protect them from this sphere. Okay? Now, why is that so significant? Well, because here with tereo ek, this idea of protection, and our understanding of Colossians, that there's two spheres, this informs how tereo ek is used in Revelation 3.10. And that is a passage that is central to our understanding of the rapture. Okay? In other words, what we've demonstrated is in uh, John 17.15, that this tereo ek, tereo is keep from, it's the idea of protection. That means protecting somebody from the sphere. You never enter this. You're outside of it. You'll never be in it. Okay, you're protected from that sphere. Now let me show you how that's used the same way in Revelation 3.10. Revelation 3.10, Jesus says, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Now, Post-tribulationalists, they believe tereo ek, keep from, means to be kept from inside the midst of the sphere. The inside. Are you with me? 
Okay, so that would mean here. So think of this as time. We're heading towards the tribulation period, and here we have the hour of tribulation. What the post-tribulationists are saying is that Tereso, it's, it's uh, future, that they, we, we, you and I are in this sphere and we're preserved through it. Okay? But how was it used in, in John 17, 15? It was used on the outside. We were kept from the hour. Are you with me? So the idea isn't that we're kept and preserved while we're inside the tribulation, but rather what Jesus is, or, yeah, Jesus is saying here is this. We're going to be kept from. Okay, in other words, we're, we're never going to enter into this sphere because that's how it's used in John 17, 15. So you see how if we understand Colossians, the two spheres, there's the sphere of Satan and the sphere of Christ. If we apply that and understand, yes, this informs how I understand even John 17, 15. And if I understand John 17, 15 correctly, then now I understand Revelation 3, 10 as well. You see, so now we're using this concept of the two spheres and it helps us even understand passages in John and also in Revelation. There's another yeah, passage that's very applicable. I'll yeah. do this real quick. Yeah. 1 John 5:19. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Yeah. So there's the two spheres. Two spheres, yes. Yeah, because we are of God. We're not under that sphere of influence of Satan, yeah. but the whole world is. The whole world is, And exactly. so every time somebody's converted, they're transferred from one to the other. That's right. That, that passage was 1 John 5 and 19. <laughs> I saw that a second ago. Yeah, so I love that. And so the next time, too, you see phrases like, in Christ, think of that as a dative of sphere. We're in, we're in the sphere of Christ. So just start thinking in those categories, and I think it's going to help you understand the Scriptures. It helps you understand eternal security. It helps you understand what Jesus is praying in John 17, 15, John 1, Revelation 3, 10, and so forth. And Colossians is inundated with that concept. Yeah, we had um, Brian. Going back, going back to the stoichia, yeah. uh, I, I was wondering if you can draw a, a comparison to Genesis 6 on that. I remember Keith was yeah. doing thing about a year ago, and then he was talking about the thread of the stoichia yep. all the way back through the Old Testament. And although it's probably not the first time the stoichia comes up in the Old Testament, it seems like Genesis 6 we see is where you actually see large groups of people appeasing these fallen angels. Yeah, I agree. I'm sold on the idea, the, the idea of the Nephilim being these crossbreeds, if you will, between the angels and these human beings. And Keith, you can talk more on this. But you know, the evidence that kicked me over to this theory, and I saw it right away, it was in the book of Jude. And we can read that in a second, but why don't you, um, you probably have something to say on this. I, I always had a, kind of a question, but oh, I'm the concept of the stoichia, I think we see it close, closest at Babel, where God divides the humanity, all, the, all of the, the pagan humanity, because there is no chosen people at that time, underneath the, the powers uh, that are there. So you have humanity being split up. And it says that in Deuteronomy, that when God you know, divided the earth according to the son, number of the sons of God, it's the, those, yeah. those passages that are applicable there, I believe. Yeah. My question has to do with this. Yeah. When Jesus says, I pray that, uh, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, in John, uh-huh. He's, in essence, he's not, he's saying, I don't ask you to rapture them. Is that, would that be another way of looking at it? Well, what, what I'm saying is, 
what we're looking at here right now in this context is that he is not asking that in this span of time that we're talking about that the Christians would be removed from this sphere. Okay. So, so he's he's asking at this time, I'm not yeah, asking I would you to say, rapture them. It's another almost another way. Yeah. Of looking here, at here, it. let's talk about time because the time issue is important. Let me just fast forward actually back to 3:10. What what's key here in 3:10 is this discussion about the hour. Notice that this is the hour of testing which will come upon the whole world. Therefore, no one can claim that this is just a localized tribulation that only those at this church were going through. Okay. Are you with me? So, so, so what, what you were saying is that the time before the hour, he's not asking that exactly. God would rapture them. But when the hour comes, that would be his prayer and it would be effective. That's exactly right. And so what I'm showing is the link between tereo ek, which means to keep from. What, what a lot of scholars have misunderstood, I think, is how the preposition is affected by the verb. And the verb here with keeping is often keeping from the situation, whereas arrow where he says, I do not wish that you take them out of the world, that's one of motion. And when we're dealing with motion like erkamai or arrow, uh, erkamai means coming, or arrow sometimes means the same thing, kind of the idea of lifting up or carrying. When we're talking about motion plus ek, the preposition, then we're talking about coming out from the midst of something. Okay, But what I'm showing you is an example where both in 1715 of John and Revelation 3.10, tereo ek, I think, means to be kept from being ever in the sphere. And I think Colossians gives us that understanding too because um, that's how Colossians understands one sphere or the other. And, and we see the concept, I think, all over the Scriptures. So, yeah, so here the hour. Notice that the hour of testing will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Those who dwell upon the earth is a technical phrase. Um, Bob and I were talking about this on the phone. It's a technical phrase de- dealing with only unbelievers throughout the book of Revelation. I think it's used, what, seven to nine times? And every single time it's used of non-believers. So when you see those who dwell upon the earth, that's an unbeliever. You might as well just say to test those unbelievers. That's what it's referring to. And notice, by the way, it's not only do we have the world, cosmos, where is it? Yeah, right here. We also have gase. So we have a repetition of a term that means it's universal. So no one can claim that this is just a localized tribulation. Or Yeah, we got, oh, I'm sorry, uh, Larry, you got one. When you have the hour of testing up there, is that what you can consider uh, divine necessity? The divine necessity as far as, I mean, it must happen. But yeah, it must happen. Yeah, we're going to be actually talking about that. Not, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, next Thursday, or this coming Thursday, we're going to have a first session of eschatology where we're going to be laying out our view of the end times. It's going to be Thursday night starting at 7 o'clock. I'm thinking it'll probably... Remember when we used to do apologetics? We went for 50 minutes, we took a break, and then we went for another 50. It's going to be something like that. I'm not sure how long I'll go the first night. But anyway, we're going to do it. I don't know how long this is going to take because I'm in the process of writing it. So it may take, I don't know, seven, eight weeks. But Yeah, I'm going to do that Thursday because I want to, yeah, let me just save that until then. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I would assume it'll probably be recorded. I have audio and the PowerPoint to put up on. Yeah, I, I got a I got a face made for radio, so <laughs> they don't give me that. Yeah, so. But Keith, does that does that answer the question? I, I think that's the issue here. But yeah, so I'm just looking at how the the verbs and the prepositions are used. Yeah, and then the other thing is the hour of testing, which comes upon the whole world. That is definitely a a, a time frame issue. So yeah. Well, with that, anybody else? Well, I think we got a couple of minutes. Oh yeah. Jeremy's got something. Oh, I'm sorry, back there. It's okay. 
Um, I think you're right about it being a timing issue because yeah. before when Jesus was speaking, if he would have you know, raptured all the Christians, the, the Great Commission would have never been fulfilled. Exactly. Versus well here said. we're talking the end times where That's right. they are being raptured before the hour of testing. That's right. Yep. Well said. Yeah. Good. It's been a great time uh, studying Colossians with all of you. Yeah, thanks.